welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's great, Chris. I'm really excited. We're at part two of our AAC and Literacy episode with Karen Erickson and Aaron Sheldon. Super excited and I actually have a story to share that relates to AAC and Literacy. All right, let's hear it. So I was working with a student who came to me somewhere in the beginning of the summer and um, this was kind of a long drawn out process with this specific student, 18 years old, um, 17 or 18. And the family had reached out a long time ago, about like a year ago and said they were interested in AAC or they thought they might be, and they weren't really sure. And, um, and, and that kind of happens a lot with me. I, I feel like parents kind of reach out and they're like, Oh, I'm not really sure. And then they circle back. <laughs> um, so it's, it's definitely something where it's not uncommon for me to have people reach out and then, you know, I'm like, okay, we can set up an initial, you know, consultation or whatever it is that they are interested in. And then they circle back eventually. Um, so that definitely happened with this family, but, um, to kind of make a longer story, a little bit shorter, we did a consultation for AAC student has had a device for a long time, like seven or eight years, but is not using the device. And after just as just a few minutes, actually, I decided to just kind of do some assessment with literacy, see, you know, is this student able to type? And Chris, you would not believe it, but he was, he has really good literacy skills. And to the point where the family was like, what? We had no idea that he was able to read and write. We had no idea. And so, you know, I share this story one, because I think it's relevant to today's interview, but also it's just so important that we are doing some, you know, foundational assessments to see what a student really knows and to make sure we're using those keyboards with kids because, you know, this specific example, I mean, this kid has been in school, I mean, since he was in preschool, he's been getting intervention since he was a preschooler. And no one knew what he was capable of because he does not have verbal speech. And, you know, I'm sure that he has picked some things up along the way. But um, the fact that the parents had no idea that he was able to type um, and knew what letter names were and letter sounds and all of those things um, was really, really crazy. Um, But I, I was super excited and I was like, yes, like not only am I excited to get you communicating with this device, but I'm really excited to get you typing and reading. And so I actually brought on board a reading specialist. Um, and that's actually, that's been a really good experience too, because this is a reading specialist that I've used, um, with other students of mine that don't use AAC and, she's a really great reading specialist and I really like working with her. And so I reached out to her and I was like, Hey, I have a client. She typically works with younger kids. So, you know, even just working with someone who's in high school, um, was a little, I think daunting for her and she's never worked with an AAC user before. And so it's been really great showing her, um, and kind of teaching her along the way, how to use the device with him, um, how, you know, working with someone who's nonverbal with reading 
can seem daunting and a little bit challenging. Um, so that's been a really good collaboration that I've been kind of participating in with this uh, reading instructor for the student. And it's just been a really beautiful kind of uh, unfolding of what he knows, what he's capable of. And I have to say that the family, after that consultation with me, I think they had two feelings. One, like we're so excited and hopeful for, you know, what this means for his future, but they also had a lot of like guilt and regret and felt like, wow, like how do we not know this? Like, and so it's a hard, it's a hard situation. And the the family got pretty emotional at the end. Like I said, both in a like positive spin, like, yes, we're so excited, but then, wow, like, I don't know that I was doing what I should have been doing as, you know, a parent because it feels like I should have known this, um, or I should have advocated for this more. And, you know, what I said to the family was when you go to the doctor, you assume that the doctor knows what to do. And so when you, you know, take your kid to school or you take him to speech therapy, you assume that, you know, they know, they know what's best. They know what to do. And so it's, it's trying to communicate that to the family so that they understand that like they didn't do anything wrong. They just trusted the professionals that were around this student. Um, but it was kind of a hard conversation to have. Um, but ultimately he's doing really great. So everyone's super excited. There's definitely an energy, um, you know, within my team that's working with him and, and the family who's also, you know, seeing what he's capable of. Um, but I thought it was a really great story to share because this is part two of our AAC and literacy episode. And I kind of uncovered that as a student that I was, you know, assessing had the ability to type. Let me ask you, when you said a student goes to school and they you expect the teachers to teach them inappropriate strategies in appropriate ways, um, and it sounds like maybe they did, right? Because he did get some, uh, I mean, somehow he learned how to type and spell and, and he knew some, clearly some orthography and, and, and what those, those letters, those, they look like and what they sound like, right? So somewhere there was some successes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And there's really just some gaps in, you know, his, his sound to letter correspondence. And especially with the vowel sounds, he gets kind of tripped up, which a lot of kids who are learning how to read have uh, some struggles with vowels. But yeah, I mean, it shows that like something, something was going right. And, and now it's just a matter of just filling in those gaps so that he, you know, becomes a stronger reader and writer. Um, I have to say too, that something that I really love about this reading specialist is that she's really trying to get him really interested in reading and get him interested in books. And so that's such an important part of the literacy piece that I think that sometimes we forget about, really trying to nurture a love for reading. And that starts with just trying to find things that kids are really interested in and excited about. Um, We're using Epic Books with him, which is a really great website, Um, has tons of different books that are all digital, so really great for telepractice. Um, But you can kind of assign students books um, and find things that are interesting and exciting for kids. You can change the reading level to kind of search for what you need. So that's been a really great tool. And it's just really exciting to see how interested he is in reading now, um, you know, and finding new books that he's really excited to look at and, um, and to read. I think um, self-selecting books is a fantastic strategy to talk about and to use with students. In fact, that's where I see some 
people kind of go awry sometimes is that um, you force kids to read certain types of books. You know, uh, it's assigned to you. The expectation is you do it. And that's not to say that you, that, that can't work sometimes. I mean, certainly that's been an, an ongoing strategy. But selecting, self-selecting books is where you get that love of reading. You know, I get to choose the thing that I'm interested in. And I'm, I have this intrinsic motivation to want to read this book and learn the, sto- the stories and because I'm interested in it. You know, I just think of my my son you could give him an iron man book or a captain america book and he would be in so he would love it and if i gave him something like oh i don't know cross stitch to read he would be like oh do i really have you know um and so just multiply that by anything you're interested in uh for any other person because there might be someone else that's like don't give me an iron man captain america but give me a cross stitch book yeah you know so doing that self-selecting i think is a really important an epic book sounds like a great tool for that, you know? Yeah. And that's the thing too, is whenever I'm reading a story or doing shared reading or using a book in my therapy to elicit language, regardless of the student's age or diagnosis or vocabulary, you know, that we're working on, it's so great to just have kids pick what they want to read. I think oftentimes we're like, okay, like I'm going to focus on the core word open today. And I have like this book that I know is great for open. Um, and there's a time and a place for that. But if we're really thinking about shared reading and developing a love for reading and a love for books, it starts with just saying, what should we read today? Mm -hmm. You know? And in person, it was like, I would take kids to my bookcase and be like, pick out what you want. And sometimes kids would pick out like books and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do speech therapy with this book today. You know, but they had the, you know, inspiration and motivation to go select that specific book that's that book spoke to them. And so, you know, I think that that's part of the process is just like really advocating to have our students pick the books that they want to read, you know, from our bookshelf or your your virtual bookshelf. Um, That's why I love epic books. Um, We can type keywords in like, so what should we read a story about today? Like, oh, dragons. Let's see if there's any books about dragons we can read. Um, So there's lots of different ways that you can do that. But I think it starts with just like getting kids loving reading and and picking the books that they find interesting. You know what's another great resource there is shared.tarheelreader.org or just Tarheel Reader. And you know who helped develop Tarheel Reader? Karen Erickson. Karen Erickson. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly who helped develop it. (laughs) And that's the second part here. We're going to listen to Aaron Sheldon and Karen Erickson talk about literacy strategies. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love your support to keep it going. You can become a VIP listener by joining our Patreon community. Your contribution allows us to cover the costs of this podcast and pay our team for all of their hard work. You also can get some really awesome bonus content with behind the scenes videos, new tech related therapy ideas, and lots of other perks we reserve only for our Patreon. To join us, go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech. One of the big contributions, I think, to me, one of the most profound contributions you've made to the field is understanding this concept of emergent literacy versus conventional Mm -hmm. literacy and when it's appropriate to be teaching phonics and sight words and what are the stages that come before that make that meaningful? Like, what's the Mm -hmm. alphabet knowledge you need in order to now 
be able to actually really engage with phonics instruction and word study and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Can you explain that a little bit? How you, how you know when a child is ready for that sort of more conventional versus Mm -hmm. how when you know they're more emergent? Yeah. So first I have to say that I don't get to take any credit for figuring out emergent and conventional literacy. I think that the, the contribution that the Center for Literacy and Disability Studies and the whole group of us has made is helping identify sort of what are those key things that are the indicators that a child's likely to be very successful as we move into conventional teaching, decoding, and spelling, and comprehension, and writing. Um, And as we're teaching those skills, what we've learned through years and years and years of work is that the indicators that let us know we're maximizing the likelihood of success. And notice I'm being really careful not to say ready. (laughs) right? Because I think every reddening, every notion, every time we use the word ready, we invoke a candidacy. And, And we cannot have candidacy. We can't have, you have to be at this point before you get to be in my classroom. You have to be at this point before I'm going to start teaching you. We have to have an understanding that there are always things we can be doing to increase the likelihood that a child's gonna be more successful as we move forward tomorrow. So in the, in the area of literacy, we have all of these emergent literacy things that we do. And I think that we've played a big role in defining some specific routines that we've been able to um, really clearly articulate how to make them accessible to children with some really complex multiple disabilities. Um, but all of these emergent routines are intended to help build four primary areas of understanding. And we've turned those areas of understanding into simple yes, no questions. And so we ask people to ask themselves, does this child know most of the letters most of the time? Does the child have a means of communication and interaction? Are they interested and engaged during shared reading? And the really important thing there is if you're offering them a carrot to sit down and read with you right now. So if you read this book with me right now, then you can have your video. (laughs) That's not interest and engagement. That's a kid who's doing what you want them to do to get what they want. You have to have that child at the point where when you invite a shared reading opportunity, they're looking forward to it in the way most children look forward to a bedtime story. Right. right. Like they, they want for to its have own that. value, its own value, not because it's going to get you right. Children, children value bedtime story because it gives them more time to interact with their parent before they have to go to bed. That's what we want. <laughs> They're not valuing it because, oh, goody, when we finish this, you're going to turn off the lights and make me go to sleep. Right. Like it is it is about its value is in promoting that sustained interaction and engagement. And that's that's what we want all kids to be interested in. So back to these four questions. The first one was knowing most letters most of the time. The second one was having a means of communication and interaction. The third one was um, uh, being interested and engaged during shared reading. And the fourth is understanding that, that writing is about letters and words. It doesn't mean you can use letters and words to write yet. But you understand that mom is making a list to help her remember what she needs to buy at the grocery store. You can't make that list, but you get that there's some meaning in these letters that have been written down that have some purpose somewhere else. Those four things, when we get children who we can say yes to those four questions, our experience is that we have put them in a position to be highly likely to benefit from teaching them comprehension, teaching them phonics or decoding, teaching them spelling, teaching them reading and writing skills. But it doesn't mean we wait for those things to magically appear. We, if we have a no, we start today 
doing the series of interventions that we define as our emergent literacy routines. And so, yes, there are things we can do every day to increase likelihood of success moving forward. That That's not going to happen any app in the absence of really carefully thought out creating those learning opportunities. I think in the context of inclusion, then we have this challenge of people think, oh, I have a 16-year-old who's still emerging. Why would I put them in a general education classroom? Because in general education, we're working on these much higher skills. But these routines that are the emergent routines can happen beautifully in the context of a general education classroom. One of the stories that I heard was a high school 10th grade biology teacher who had a child included, who was a beginning symbolic communicator, who was absolutely merging and under, in literacy understandings. And in the context of biology, right, like they're whipping through a chapter a week in that 10th grade classroom. And um, the teachers introducing just set up this routine to introduce vocabulary at the beginning of every week using our predictable chart writing structure. Right. Right? Right. So the children without disabilities who are 10th graders who are learning at this rapid pace, this really high level context, they would get, I don't know, they'd have a predictable chart where the title would be cytology, right? And then there would be this simple repeated stem, right? It has to do with blank. It has to do with blank. It has to do with blank. And the teacher in a matter of three minutes doing the same kind of overview of this big idea that they were going to be looking at that week would get kids to connect this new idea with things that they knew. And in the process would end up creating the predictable chart that now became this rich learning opportunity for this child who needed that emergent instruction in the classroom. The other thing that happened for the child with more severe disabilities who was in there is that kid is getting support from the peers as they're connecting this new idea to the known ideas they have. And, and now these peers are helping this kid with, it's not their intent, but, mm-hmm. but in fact, most of the time there ends up being a Karen Erickson sitting in one of those classrooms who's really interested in Maggie, who really wants to think about how do I answer that question in a way that makes sure Maggie understands it? Right. What's the word I can fill in that increases that? There's a Karen in every classroom, in every school, if we provide that opportunity, Karen's going to do better because now I'm going beyond my first gut level response to really thinking about, all right, I get this new concept. How do I add my slot filler be the one that's Mm -hmm. now going to help? Shared reading then where we have these rich interactions, I just created the text using this predictable chart that now becomes the shared reading that I can do with this child who still needs emergent that's completely related to what's going on in the classroom. Those general education 10th grade biology students are writing in their lab books every day. They're writing about this experiments they're doing. They're taking notes. All of those provide opportunities for me to engage in emergent writing. What changes is my expectation of what it's going to look like on the piece of paper not my expectation of this emergent reader and writer doing reading and writing also. They can choose a topic that's related to what everybody else is writing about, and then they're going to try to write about it using access to the whole alphabet. So we've acted as if it's some rocket science to figure out how to do that, but it's really not. And if we can provide sustained instruction over time that's really focused on building 
understandings and skills in these core areas, we then get the kind of enduring learning where it doesn't just look like it's working right now, but it contributes to more progress next year and the year after that. And ultimately we have somebody who we have four yeses and suddenly we are teaching reading and writing in a way that looks a whole lot more like what we've been doing with the kids without disabilities. Mm -hmm. And again, now we have this challenge of, you know, we got an 11th grader who needs beginning level reading and writing instruction. And, and we act as if somehow, well, how do we'd have to pull them out to do that? No, the general classroom is full of opportunities to provide a really clear direct instruction at the level that the student needs and still have it connected in a meaningful way to what everybody else is doing. Well, and where I've been the most excited supporting inclusion across a whole bunch of contexts is, yes, our emergent kid really needs that. But there are kids in every gen ed classroom who are really struggling <laughs> with the content. And when we make it that explicit and structured for our kid, mm -hmm. we have just created an access point for those kids mm -hmm. where it now becomes, even if I think one of the things I've been most struck by is the number of kids who become so much more successful because they feel smart and successful because they're helping to make that connection between cytology or right. whatever's happening in biology mm -hmm. for our kid. Mm -hmm. And by trying to figure out those words that are gonna go into that predictable mm -hmm. chart writing, um, they now have so much more sense of their own success mm -hmm. that they're now much more available to learn as well. I, I'm sure that you're experiencing the same thing in Ontario that we're experiencing in North Carolina of having a huge influx of second language learners, yeah. right? And now think about this completely capable individual who just happens to be learning the dominant language of instruction, right? Like they just don't know it yet. Think about the support that that individual is being provided in having an on-ramp to the instruction in that classroom and how much you'd be building and accelerating that language learner's uh, ability to read and write in the language of instruction in the classroom. Think about like, it's just like, it just makes sense. But we always, we I don't think when we're talking about inclusion, that we do a good enough job of figuring out that figuring out how to have our kids included is just an extension of the same kind of differentiation we have to do for everybody. Right. It's not this separate something, right. right? We can figure that out and how to, um, how to help everyone along the way. Right. So this gets to one of the, the four points that mm -hmm. you listed was a means of, of communication mm -hmm. and interaction. Yeah. And I'll give you a quick story. Um, what we found from Maggie when she was in, I think it was seventh grade, uh, Ontario got a big influx of refugees from Syria, many of whom were not literate in their first language because of everything that they had just survived mm -hmm. in order to get to Canada in the midst of a war and all of that sort of thing. And having a visual representation of the spoken language, mm -hmm. every single kid in class had a core board of all of her words. Uh -huh. And so they had a visual to anchor each word with a word written underneath. Uh -huh. And these Syrian kids were all asking for extra copies and they took them home and used them in English instruction at home awesome. to teach their parents yeah. English. And it was so interesting. I think it was the first time I realized how much English language learners really benefited from having an AAC user in their classroom. Mm -hmm. And and as well as kids who, you know, maybe with a variety of, of LD kind of issues, 
issues really benefit from not having to generate a word, but be able to like open a folder. They're supposed to find a, a describing word for something. They're supposed to find, you know, we're trying to explain what cytology is to be able to recognize Mm-hmm. a word they see that relates as opposed to having to generate the mm-hmm. word. And I think this is where including our kids is providing universal design for learning for a whole bunch of kids who need a visual form of language to help mm-hmm. them to help them access uh-huh. yeah. happening in the classroom. Yeah. You know, one of the projects that um, we've been working on that's been um, really overwhelmingly successful is our Project Core. Mm -hmm. And what we've been trying to accomplish in Project Core is to create uh, a universal solution. Um, Do you all talk about multi-tiered systems of support or response Response to intervention? intervention? So in the context of response to intervention, the thing that we do for all kids every day is called the universal. And so all grade one children should be getting comprehensive reading and writing instruction. Like it's just what we do. And then there's some subset of children who are really struggling. And so we have a tier two support that we provide that's a little bit more intensive, but oftentimes is small groups and and kind of packaged. Mm -hmm. And then we have kids who still aren't doing well. And so then they might receive some really individualized, specialized supports at a tier three. And for kids who use communication supports, the answer has always been just go directly in at tier three. Right. right. And and one of the challenges, as, as we've talked about before, are these models where in order to get that specialized service, you have to have already mastered a set of skills. Well, the reason you rose to the top of the model is you couldn't learn those things. So then how do we get you the specialized service that you need if you can't learn those uh, uh, skills to begin with? Right. So I think I, I've understood that it's like you have to have 20 symbols. You have to demonstrate you can use 20 symbols in order to be a candidate to get AAC. Well, for me, that's a reasonable tier three, but you have to be doing something to help the child learn the symbols in the first place. It's not like you could just wait and developmentally suddenly they're going to know them. We have to teach them. So what we've been trying to do in Project Core is create a system that is that universal solution that is available to everybody freely, that's supported through on-demand online professional development and instructional resources, just sort of come up with this universal, if you have children in your class who for whatever reason can't meet their current communication needs with speech um, in the language of instruction, Um, and don't have another solution available to them, here's your default solution. This isn't the end game. This is how you make sure that every child's getting access to that universal support that allows them to have a chance to then, in the world of AAC, access that tier three specialized support that they really need. And so this this universal core, which is what we've created, and there are lots of core boards, right? Like mm-hmm. you're, I'm sure Maggie's is very different than the one that we that we have gotten permission to just give away. Um, that this having this universal core board in place, it's really interesting to watch what happens when that just becomes the norm for everybody. Mm-hmm. So we'll walk into primary grades classrooms where there might be two or three children who really need it as a, a way to learn about how symbols work, how to how picture symbols work in order to communicate with the world. And but we, here we are watching all these other children who have all kinds of ways that they successfully communicate who still are benefiting from having this graphic symbol-based approach to support that. Um, some specific examples in a classroom recently, a little boy who was a fluent ASL user 
who had a full-time interpreter in the classroom who would, um, you, you know, use ASL to then communicate back with everybody else. But he wanted a way to communicate directly with his peers in the classroom, and they didn't understand ESL. He started taking this core board and using the core board to point to symbols to communicate to his hearing and speaking and seeing peers in the classroom so they didn't always have to go through the adult who was there, right? Um, another child in that classroom had some speech, but it was rarely full sentences. And that child started using the core board in order to expand his own utterances. And as he was pointing to those words, suddenly he's saying those words in a way people are hearing and understanding. And, and so does he need it as his primary mode of communication? No, he does pretty well. Did it clarify and support the success? Absolutely. So what we've been trying to do is, is build this base. Like, how do we make sure that every classroom that has any child who, for any reason, they might be second language learners, they might have complex communication needs, that they have something to get started? Because we can't get kids to that tier three unless we've tried to teach them somewhere along the way. We've got to provide that opportunity to learn. And so having this default opportunity, this like, let's give something and let's make sure that it's not that we're laminating and, and populating the world with these, but that we've got these instructional practices in place that give kids a chance to learn how these symbols work so that when they do finally get to go for that AAC evaluation, that group who we originally created it for can actually demonstrate the skill that they need for people to do more than say, here's your single message voice output device because that should never be the outcome of an AAC evaluation. It should never be the outcome that a child goes and that the, the recommendation is, here's your single message voice output right. device, because there's no way to go from a single message voice output device to the 20 or more symbols that you need to know in order to gain access to that high-tech device down the road. So if you have a child who doesn't meet your model to be able to get access to that high-end device, your recommendation must include a system that's robust enough that it offers multiple symbols that children can learn to distinguish between those symbols and that they can learn to use symbols for multiple purposes across multiple partners. If your recommendation is for a single button, you have made sure that there is no way that the child can learn the very thing that you're saying they have to learn to gain access to that technology down the road. And, and so think about it, if your model is 20, then that recommendation has to be something that has at least 20, <laughs> right. Right? Right, right, right? And I'm gonna recommend that if you need them to learn 20, you probably need to go higher than 20 in order to make sure that you've got enough that they're really gonna learn 20 in right. order to be able, yeah. So this notion of multi-tier and this idea of universal and that universal means all. Right. So getting back to what you said about how we have to be really specific about how we define access. Mm -hmm. Maybe as parents, we've made the mistake of saying, my child needs access to a speech generating device and an AAC assessment. When instead, what is the instruction my child needs access to and what are the, the kinds of tools that will provide that instruction? Mm -hmm. That that's what we should be advocating for. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's actually not 
that big a problem that if our local AAC assessment is requiring certain standards in order to get the full-fledged device and the, mm -hmm. the funding, but it's unacceptable that there isn't a pathway to that that is universally available to all students and that when you go in and you're told your child isn't ready mm -hmm. for the AAC assessment, great, here's our plan uh -huh. for how we're going to get them there. Yes. And that's the key. And I think it's parallel to the work we've done in literacy around emergent and conventional, right? So sort of, I talked about those four questions in literacy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't have a candidacy model, but I, I, it, I can understand why with limited resources, something like that comes into place. Okay. But so let's have our questions. What is it that we need to teach kids in order to maximize the likelihood that when they have their AAC evaluation, they're going to get access to the funding in order to get that, that high-tech device that we would like them to get? So, all right, I say for literacy, in order to increase the likelihood that they're going to be successful with my conventional literacy instruction, I need to teach them the letters of the alphabet. And they need to be able to identify most of those letters most of the time. It's not that different from they need to know 20 symbols. Okay. Right? And so what are those? Now we most say- Most of the symbols on the core board most, most of, of the, the time. time. Right? Okay. Right? That they, but it isn't just that they know those. In order to be successful in that evaluation, they also have to demonstrate interest and engagement in interaction much like our question too, that they have a means of communication and interaction. That doesn't have to be symbolic, right? right? It can be using gestures and yes, no, and all of the ways that our kids communicate that when we know them, we can certainly read those behaviors. That like, okay, so let's identify what that is. Let's identify the um, that they uh, need to understand that writing is about letters and words. Well, in communication, they need to understand that these pictures carry meaning that is about communicating with other people. So let's identify those things so that then we can figure out, well, then what is the emergent instruction? What are these things? And I think we've done that in Project Core. I think we've provided people with that you need to make sure every child all day, every day has access to a, a symbol-based means of communication. And for us, it's our universal core that you're providing aided language input all day, every day. So you're demonstrating for that child, you and other people in the environment, how do you select or point to a graphic symbol or a tactual symbol in, to represent the words that most people are speaking in your environment, right? Like how does that, that aided language has to be happening? That we're gonna teach everyone to attribute meaning to all of those things that you do with your body to communicate. That we have to do that at this emergent level. If we ever want you to be able to walk into that stranger's office for that AAC evaluation and not just demonstrate that you know 20 symbols, not just demonstrate that you know how to interact and engage with other people, but also demonstrate that you understand not just when somebody says, show me, tree, mm -hmm. but you get that pointing to that symbol actually has communication meaning, right? right. So, so what we've done in Project Core is... And I'm really happy to be articulating this with you because there's going to be a new really pretty graphic that comes out of this, that we've, we've done the parallel of here's when you're at symbolic communication, here's the routines and the tools. But in order to get you there, we've got to be doing these things. And we know what those are. We have that research. And now through Project Core, 
we've packaged it in a highly accessible way for people who are not speech language pathologists, for people who do not have that background, that parents can log in and take, they don't even have to log in, parents can go and take our 12 modules and really have built skills. They can have their children's caregivers, grandma who mm-hmm. desperately wants to have a relationship with their child could be taking those modules and learn more about how to read and interact. All of those important people suddenly have access to uh, opportunities to learn about what is this emergent communication, right? Like, mm-hmm. What does that look like? Mm-hmm. And how do we increase the likelihood that when kids get access to the high-end device, that they're going to be successful with it. It's not like once you get it, now magically our world is solved. Now we still, it's really about increasing the likelihood that somebody will say, yeah, we think that you can benefit from this. And then figuring out what does the instruction look like throughout your lifetime to allow you to continue to be successful in using it as a means of communicating and interacting with other people. I honestly thought I had learned everything I could learn from you and you have just connected even more dots now <laughs> that, um, but that this, I had not connected that way before. That uh-huh. was incredibly powerful. Very cool. I was going to say the other thing about Project Core that I want people listening to the podcast to know is that you don't just have these professional development modules, but you have them set up where you might be the teacher or the speech therapist and not feel highly knowledgeable, but you can group facilitate mm-hmm. and still be the trainer, still be the teacher teaching other people mm-hmm. while you're learning the content too, because there's resources there for you to facilitate training for other people. So mm-hmm. I find that teachers really like that or speech pathologists really like that because they don't necessarily want to expose themselves as not knowing the content uh-huh. and, and and being all learners but right. it kind of gives them that way to to provide professional development when really what they're doing mm-hmm. is providing your project core modules yeah and I feel like um, teachers are more guilty of this than speech pathologists mm-hmm. but but I'm a teacher um, we're often afraid afraid to claim expertise mm-hmm. right um, when we do uh, workshops and we do these camps and I just can't tell you how often teachers preface what they're going to say with, I'm just a teacher, oh, right? Um, I'm guilty of that doing that here at this uh, ASHA conference that we're at, where everybody around me seems to be a speech language pathologist. And I'm regularly saying, I'm just a teacher, right? Like, and, and, but it is sort of our ethos in a way. And so with these facilitated modules, what we're saying is, look, you know the people that you want to learn this. You know what's most important. And so you can facilitate our delivery of the training. We do it in a video format, we give it to you. And now you make it work in the context where you're trying to make this difference. I think for me, one of the most powerful ways I've seen those facilitated modules work is um, we, in the US right now, there's a big thing going on around professional learning communities where groups of teachers Mm -hmm. who teach um, get together. And those professionals this is big in Ontario. Okay, all right. So those professional learning communities have taken our list of modules and prioritized them. And they're just rotating through a different teacher each day or educator. Sometimes SLPs are in these groups also, 
will be the facilitator at each one of these small groups. And they're in a group of four or five working through that facilitated module together. And they bring children's work samples and they bring their really deep knowledge of a common set of children that they're trying to think through. And they're they're doing these modules in that context and, um, and putting together these really nice professional learning plans that uh, administrators that oftentimes we have to turn those plans into tend to be really impressed with because it's directly related to these children that they're trying to figure out. It provides a way to think about reflecting on your own practice and project core for all of the routines that we ask people mm-hmm. to try. There are these self-reflection and observation tools. And so we recommend that if you're working in these small groups that you would take the module and take the associated reflection tool and go and do it and gather your own data on your own practice and then come back together. And so often when we do this, we're looking at kid data when until we know that we're doing the best that we can do, it's really hard to think about, is this working for the child or not? Like, well, are you with some level of fidelity trying to do all of the things that you could do to maximize the likelihood of their success? So that really small group format where teachers are working through it together has been super, it's exciting to be a part of those groups when we see it happening. So you've just connected one more dot for me, which is that if we're within this context we're in, where kids have to show a certain level of skills in order to get that tier three support of their Mm -hmm. own AEC system, and we have an education system that hasn't figured out the instruction needed to get kids so that they're eligible for that tier three, Mm -hmm. that really what we should be focusing on Ontario is getting these modules out to our professional learning communities, our teachers who are already coming together Mm -hmm. around other topics, because this is already that model of professional development. Right. And and now imagine when Maggie goes for that AAC evaluation and she doesn't demonstrate 20, right? When she was Mm -hmm. a little kid and she doesn't demonstrate 20 and And instead of saying, here's your four location device, right? Here's your single message, which it's not, you understand, it's not possible to get from four to 20, right? She didn't have access to what she needed to even begin to get to the bar that they've set. And so it becomes this, like, it's just not fair. Like maybe she won't learn it, but she can't learn it if you don't provide that opportunity. And so what if instead of that, the recommendation comes back with, here's the things that we notice she could do because we've used the communication matrix. We've used some tool that's a criterion tool that helps mm-hmm. us not just focus on what kids can't do, but helps us focus on what they can do with some recommendations for how to build on what she already can do. And then potentially, uh, and we're going to schedule your repeat visit for 12 months from now. And in order to come to this visit, the school team must demonstrate that they've completed and worked to implement these 12 modules. The right, mm-hmm. like how do we create some systems across the health system and the education system so we hold each other accountable to having kids be able to be mm-hmm. successful? If if AAC is going to be in one system, how do we make sure that the other system knows how? to teach children what they need to learn in Mm -hmm. order to then have the kind of human rights access that we expect them to have on the other system. Like those have to be together. 
And so um, oftentimes what's happening um, in some large school systems where they have working AAC teams in the school system and they do their own in-house AAC evaluations, they have long waiting lists like you would imagine. And when on the the child's individual education plan, the box gets checked that they're gonna get signed up for an assistive technology or Mm -hmm. AAC evaluation, that team then sends back the universal core board in a format that they think is most likely to be successful as a starting place and directs the school, the team to take the professional development modules and begin implementing the universal core in their classroom with those five instructional practices Mm -hmm. that are called out so that by the time that child gets their AAC evaluation six months from now, they know something. They've had six months of people trying, and they might not be doing it very well, but at least they're trying to attribute meaning and provide aided language right. input and to make sure that those symbols are available all day, every day. And right, like all, all of that becomes increases. So then a system that has limited resources, if you do that up front, now I don't have to schedule a follow-up evaluation for you a year from now because I didn't have you wait and see and show up and not be able to do it. And now I send you home. What if there is this a system that when the appointment is made, the team is informed and that there's an expectation that you're gonna do these things. Just like if you're gonna have some health exams, right? Mm-hmm. There's things that you got, you're not allowed to eat the day before surgery. Right. And if you show up right. and you say, well, I just had a little bit of breakfast. You don't get to have the <laughs> surgery that day, right? I was hungry. I ate a little bit. Well, guess what? Okay. That was your choice. But now, and and so now we're not going to waste the resources on an evaluation for a child who's never had any opportunity to learn. Right. Why would we expect them to know how to do this if no one's tried to teach them how to do this first? And so do we make the system more efficient by having some sort of universal solution up front? Mm -hmm. Um, And in, uh, we have one school system that's working on getting me permission for their data, but the over the phone, the lead SLP shared with me that what the seat, the change that has happened in their school system by taking this universal approach, and they are known across our country for having a really outstanding AAC system in their schools, hmm. but 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 now they have a dramatic increase in kids who have access to high-end technology hmm. because they spent last year getting universal core into every classroom that had any child with complex communication needs. So not because they spent more time doing individual AAC assessments. But because they spent more time getting, and now what the SLPs report a year later is now they get to spend more of their time teaching the children who have the high-end devices how to use them more effectively because the classrooms are supporting all of the emergent teaching and learning, not the expert Right? right. And so the experts spent a year and now they ha- they're using Project Core. They have these modules. So as new people come and go, when new um, paraprofessionals or one on one support people come in, they're told which are the modules that are most important for you to be taking to know how to best support this child. And so it's, you know, an hour in the middle of their, you know, on a day during their first week that we can figure out how to cover for this child while you get paid to do this one or two hours of training. That's critical for you to understand what it is we're trying to do to support this child. And it really becomes this very sustainable, scalable 
approach, mm-hmm. not to the long, not to the kid's individual long-term solution, but to making sure that we maximize the likelihood that the child will be successful with that long-term solution by building a universal system. You have just connected so many dots and I feel like I can understand exactly what role the parent, the school speech pathologist, the clinic speech pathologist, the teacher, the educational assistant will all play mm-hmm. or can all play to be part of the, mm-hmm. the solution. This is this has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much, Karen. You're welcome. You're welcome. I actually have to say you helped me figure out some things that <laughs> I'm now really excited to go back and start doing some sketching and drawing. And um, yeah, uh, cool. it, it's been helpful to to think through some of the things and and to have some different ways. So thank you. Cool. Thank you so much. Great.